The How To Academy podcast is the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. They host exclusive in-depth interviews with world-leading scholars, artists, scientists, and entrepreneurs, exploring new ideas for understanding and changing our world. Past guests include Bill Clinton, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Elizabeth Gilbert, Daniel Kahneman, Marina Abramovich, Malcolm Gladwell, Michael Lewis, Joyce Carol Oates, Gabor Mate, Chelsea Manning, and many more. That's the How To Academy podcast, to the word, not the numeral, on Apple, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are found. In this episode, we speak with Julia Rhodes Davis, a senior advisor at Data and Society, about her recent report, Advancing Racial Equity Through Technology Policy, published by the AI Now Institute. This comprehensive report provides an in-depth examination of how the technology industry impacts racial inequity and concrete policy recommendations for reform. A critical insight from the report is that advancing racial equity requires a holistic approach. The report provides policy recommendations to reform antitrust law, ensure algorithmic accountability, and support tech entrepreneurship for people of color. In our interview, Julie explains how advancing racial equity requires policy change as well as coalition building with impacted communities. She discusses the urgent need to reform practices of algorithmic discrimination that restrict opportunities for marginalized groups. Julia highlights some positive momentum from federal and state policy efforts, and she encourages people to get involved with local organizations, providing a great list of organizations you might consider. Julia, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. We're excited to talk to you today. Thanks so much for having me. Why don't you start off by talking about the report that you published? What what inspired you to write this um, report now? Um, so now is a relative term, but advancing racial equity through technology policy was published through AI Now last week um, and actually was a project a couple of years in the making. Um, but the inspiration really... Um, I think is is at least two or threefold. Um, you know, I have been at working at the intersection of technology and society, um, and with an emphasis on technology, democracy, and race for the better part of the last decade. Um, and you know, I have, in the context of various positions and organizations, um, continued to uh, you know try to lift up the perspectives of um, scholars and policy folks who have been for, you know, a long time drawing attention to the disparate impacts of technology and more recently AI on um, communities of color, poor communities, people with other marginalized identities. Um, And that conversation, you know, typically, depending on where you are, um, is a conversation that's often happening at the margins. Um, and the mainstream uh, technology conversation um, often is about, you know, the great potential benefits of technology in our lives um, and very rarely is focused on um, the impacts and sometimes the harmful impacts of technology. Um, and, you know, adding the layer of disparate impacts on communities of color um, is even more uh, left to the margins. And so, um, you know, as the AI sector was really ramping up over the last uh, several years, 
Um, I could not have predicted what would have been going on in, in uh, October of 2023 when we launched this paper. But um, I, you know, I and my co-authors and the contributors to this project, um, you know, really all recognize that if we don't have technology and AI systems that work for everyone, um, we are going to continue to reinforce you know, the um, racialized harms, um, racial bias uh, that we see, um, you know, sort of prevalent in society throughout. Um, so, you know, the, an inspiration very much was to uh, be another voice, another project um, that's evidence-based, that's really calling for the importance of centering racial equity in technology policy. And um, I think that it's just really important to call out that uh, this is, you know, to the benefit of everyone. And I think that that speaks to sort of the second um, level or, or another aspect of, of my inspiration for doing this is I, I deeply long to live in a different world than the one that we're living in right now. I don't want to live at the brink of fascism and authoritarianism, and I want a democracy that works for everyone um, and I want everyone to have um, access to what they need to thrive. And we currently have systems and structures that are being reinforced with AI and other technologies um, that that continue to make that future that I wish to live in um, ever more uh, distant. Um, so my hope is that this is an offering towards bringing that world about. So I think that, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if listeners who are paying attention to the AI space and the news in the space might have a reaction to say, well, uh, I, I read a lot about this. Aren't we already talking about it a lot? And, you know, from mm -hmm. the sort of ethics teams that are being dismantled, key individuals getting thrown out of the tech industry. But I recognize that in the report, there's sort of um, I'll put my lens on it. You can tell me where I've gotten this wrong. There's sort of three different places of possible conversation. There's like what's getting covered about the industry, you know, as a as a as an external dialogue. There's the dialogue inside the tech companies, and there's you also talk a lot about policy and what's happening at policy level. And I, I'd love to get your lens on like. First of all, hopefully that's an okay characteristic. But secondly, <laughs> like where's the where? How would you define and 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 highlight the key gaps? Like maybe start with the, the sort of how the industry is being covered. Like what's what what is what is being missed in the mm -hmm. in the media coverage of this topic that you wish you could amplify? If you said, ah, if I could really drive this whole narrative across the front page of all the major newspapers, you know, this is you know this is the way I'd want to describe it. Like, what's that gaps to you? Um, that's such a good question. I think that there are a few gaps. Um, one is, you know, the, the primary way that AI is being covered right now, and, you know, I don't blame folks for trying to get people to read what they write in a very oversaturated media world. But the reality is, you know, most of the frames are very binary. They are um, AI is either the best thing that ever happened to us or it's going to kill us all. Um, you know, and, and nothing in between. And, um, you know, there's also rhetoric around, we've figured out how to deal with algorithmic bias, you know, or we figured out how to automate content moderation. So really we need to be focused on existential risk that we don't really know anything about. Um, but we're going to put a lot of our resources there. And the reality is, you know, that's not a solution to the fact that 
Um, you know, as of, I think it was two days ago or three days ago, the markup just published a, an article demonstrating um, with a lot of evidence that predictive policing doesn't work, that it doesn't work 99% of the time. So it's really bad at what it's supposed to do and really good at perpetuating racial bias. Um, so I think, you know, to, to distill it and to sort of get to your question, one of the gaps is really around what are the impacts of AI systems on people's everyday lives? Um, and, you know, in, in my field, we talk a lot about sort of the socio-technical impacts and the social and political implications of AI systems. That frame is really lacking in much of mainstream media's co media coverage of AI more generally. Um, the other thing I would say is, um, you know, much of the coverage is is sort of siloed or goes into distinct aspects of, say, how the business model works or um, suggests that there are many different business models operating inside different tech companies. And I think one of the things that we've found in our research is that um, the most dominant tech firms, quote, big tech, are uh, generally following the same business model and some, you know, there's tuning, you know, um, Meta doesn't have a cloud play, um, but they are using data-driven services and have privatized infrastructure to support that. Um, Microsoft, Amazon, you know, they are, are you know, all very much using data-driven services and um, increasing computational infrastructure that they own um, and increasingly most of you know, technology is dependent on these services, especially with the explosion of generative AI. Um, <clears throat> and we can get more into it, but the, the bottom line is it's important to cover the big picture, to cover the full view of how these companies operate, how they continuously consolidate power, and how that ultimately impacts outcomes for people um, and for our democracy. Um, so I hope uh, that's helpful. It is, and I love the answer because it's um, it, it's a it's a very challenging topic, to, I think, to cover. Um, having spent some time in news business and having a lot of friends in that space, it's because you it, it you know the what we read will generally be something that is um, reflecting news, right? So um, someone of great influence gets fired from Google. That's the news part, not the depth and nuance that you're talking about in terms of what is a um, long-term, pervasive, sometimes very hidden impact, that's that's a very challenging thing for journalists to dig deep enough into to be able to reflect well. Um, that's why I think reports like this are so valuable, right? Because it takes a lot longer. As you said, you were working on this for a couple of years. That's not usually the normal cycle, you know, at a media company. Yeah, and I think it's um, one of the things that jumped out uh, in, in, the, in the discussion so far for me was... Um, well, hang on, maybe this hasn't all been solved. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, Hold on a second. And, We've been watching this yeah, too for years. And but, it's not that that was a particular surprise yeah. to me, but it, it alerted me to the fact that the, the, the rhetoric um, with ChatGPT and generative AI, it, it is, it, the, the discussion just shifted overnight mm to one of, um, you know, we've covered it ourselves and we've written about this as well. It's, it's AI is going to make life wonderful for everyone. It's going to save the planet. It's going to cure every disease, blah, blah. And, or it's going to kill us all. 
And we've lost that nuance in the conversation that existed over the last couple of years, which was much more about um, how is it affecting people every day? What's happening with predictive policing? What's happening with predictive algorithms that states run um, for for um, people with disabilities? You name it. There's all of that um, good progress in um, fairness, if you like, uh, has sort of just been washed out by the 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 the, the wave of generative AI, and I. I that's one of the things that sort of attracted me to, to picking up the report was, um, like you say, that holistic view and bringing us back to um, the fact that that a lot of these problems still exist. And if anything, they've become harder to, to see. They're much more opaque mm. in another layer again. Um, and just to, to dive into a couple of things in the report, I'm curious about how you – how, uh, what um, how you thought about bringing in the aspects around entrepreneurship and the uh, the access to um, and being able to run a business as a as as a pe- as a person of color or in a disadvantaged community low income community how you reframe that in the report was novel and I'm curious about how you sort of approached that part of the research. And obviously to summarize it for the readers. Sure. So um, I think that the methodology for developing the report is important as background. Um, So I'll speak to that, but I'll also answer your question directly, um, uh, which is to say um, Dr. Fallon Wilson was one of the academic contributors to this paper and Um, She wrote a paper called Supporting Black Businesses Online with Federal Policies and Recommendations. Um, In it, she discusses how Black-owned businesses face structural barriers to success and really policies to close the digital divide, facilitate support for Black businesses in new tech environments, and pass anti-monopoly legislation are all critical for um, supporting a more robust Black entrepreneurship ecosystem. Um, And so... You know, I think it was her research explicitly that really gave us the insight to this novel framing. Um, And in fact, you know, the to take now zoom out and and talk a little bit about the methodology of the project overall. um, We knew that we wanted to develop a framework that um, helped us understand the relationship between racial equity and the technology sector and how to advance racial equity in tech policy, but what exactly that should look like and how we understood the problem, you know, were were meant to be determined by by the the process. And so um, we initially did a literature review um, of, you know, hundreds of pieces um, that were, you know, felt relevant to really understanding the business model, really understanding the intersection uh, of racial equity and technology um, and it was from that that we really identified four areas or dimensions that we wanted to go to um, which had to do with worker power and worker voice, ownership, entrepreneurship, and the racial wealth gap, equitable access to goods, services, and information, and democracy and governance. And so from there, we put a call out to um, 
the sort of a broad expert community of academics and people working in policy um, related to these issues, um, requesting um, proposals for white papers um, and policy frameworks that we could potentially bring into our, our report. And we got a really wonderful, robust set of, of responses to that and ultimately um, uh, you know, had 10 pieces of original research um, produced for this project. And so it was on those contributions that we, in addition to the literature review and interviews with subject matter experts, that we really identified and, and defined the business model really expanded our understanding of the implications of the big tech business model on racial equity outcomes, and then ultimately developed a policy framework um, that was, you know, designed to attend to the issues that were raised in the course of our research. Hi, it's Dave with just a brief interruption. If you're enjoying our podcast, we'd love it if you'd share it with someone who you think might enjoy it too. And check out everything that artificiality has to offer at artificiality.world. Reach out anytime. We'd love to hear from you. Back to the interview. If I could jump around a little bit, um, sure. The sort of yeah. The um, the there's sort of a uh, there's a there's a there's a group of large elephants in the room, if you will, which is the big tech crowd. Um, and one of the things that's striking me is the shift in the last year. Obviously, is is the generative AI you know shift. And as Helen said, it's become understanding how human bias is replicated and amplified and, um, in, in AI results is um, in some ways becoming a little bit um, more opaque. It's harder to see. It was a little easier when, you know, um, we've, been, we've been actually covering and teaching about um, bias for several years. You go back to 2016 and the BBC article that highlighted that when you searched on Google for CEO, it was all white men until number 28, which now in the current um, sort of moment feels ironic that the, 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 the 28th was the first female, which was CEO Barbie, the doll. Um, so I, I bet Barbie might, CEO Barbie might rank higher now, except that Google went back in and, and manually changed the results. Um, and, and before that, the the famous um, work on the labeling black people as gorillas. Yes, so there's all these things that sort of get caught. But there was there was an, there was it, it almost felt at the time like it was um, uh, there were some there were some standout um, um, and awful examples that you could see because traditional AI was trying to predict a result, and so you could see the ranking, you could see how it was targeting things, and that targeting would to people would seem off and wrong or biased, right? Now we're in this generative AI world and we go through now and, you know, we can show results from generative AI, um, the Hugging Face site that allows you to compare um, how different image models um, um, show, uh, reflect different pe people, you know, descriptions, like we'll show the difference between how different image models represent childcare workers. Um, and um, both of them are, have very, you know, the ones we've tried have very striking racial kind of, you know, connections to that term. Um, different, but they're all the same, you know, the images are. Um, but it feels like this is becoming more challenging to uncover. These models are uh, immense and much harder to control, if you will, and go in and do the manual, 
you know, changes that Google has done when, as a search result. And we don't know the training data. We don't know the training data. All of this very long-winded preamble to hopefully <laughs> a question is, how do you say, if you, were, if you were able to get those large elephants in the room, right, and have those representative, the people who are actually creating and, 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 and propagating these models, what would be your recommendation for what to do about this? Um, well, I mean, I think that what you're getting at is a few, are a few thing, aspects about this issue. One, um, we're talking about a structural issue that actually ought not to be the project of tech companies alone. Um, so, you know, I really think it's important to uh, recognize the role of regulation um, and legislation in in the um, in addressing these issues and the opacity you're talking about. Um, you know, that actually, yes, it's very problematic in the context of generative AI, but it's also very problematic in the context of how decisions are being made by algorithmic decision-making systems in public benefit access, in healthcare provision, in, um, you know, any number of automated decision-making contexts that are really, you know, um, high stakes. And for people who are living in precarity already, um, you know, having no ability to understand why they've been denied access to food stamps or housing and no ability to redress, uh, access redress for, for that decision. Um, you know, that's been a problem that's been around quite a long time. Virginia Eubanks writes about that. Many scholars have written about that and, and that work is cited a lot in, in the report. Um, but what I would say to, you know, the big elephants, the big tech in the room, but actually what, you know, um, brilliant, you know, policymakers and scholars like Dr. Alondra Nelson and her team coming out of um, the Office of Science and Technology Policy published last year was a blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights. And that is, I think, the most comprehensive policy document that exists about how AI systems ought to be regulated and legislated. And so that would include um, ensuring that systems are safe and effective pre-deployment and that those who are deploying the technologies um, are uh, liable for ensuring that they are safe and effective and that there are third-party external auditors um, or people doing impact assessments really helping to assess the safety and efficacy of an AI system. It calls for um, protection against algorithmic discrimination uh, pretty self-explanatory. It talks about data privacy, which, you know, I think we have seen in the context of the EU, um, you know, it's really questionable whether generative AI actually is compliant with GDPR. And if there were more resources to support enforcement agencies in um, examining that, I think that we would see uh, that, that, that it is likely not compliant with GDPR regulation. And I would also argue that there are some geopolitical realities that are at play there that, you know, are incentivizing some alignments between government and business, um, uh, you know, objectives. Um, but then also notice an explanation, um, human alternatives, consideration, and fallback. These are all dimensions that are called for in the AI Bill of Rights that was published. And, um, and I think that it's really critical that this is something that both industry is working on already. I mean, there are fantastic people inside industry who really want to do the right thing. This is a roadmap for them. And in the meantime, we actually need 
incentives and power structures to be shaped to support this kind of um, uh, design intervention in as far as developing the technology itself. Yeah, one of the um, the things that we've found over the years when we've when we've um, done specific points of research in this in this topic is there's a lot of um, disconnect between what people say they want to do and what they actually do. And for example, um, there's a disconnect between um, testing, doing f- basic fairness testing on on predictive models versus actually, you know, doing it. Because if they do it and they find something, then if they do nothing about that, that raises issues of uh, difficult issues, <laughs> whether they're legal or whether they're ethical issues inside a company. So people will do some training in this or they'll have a policy about it, but then it actually never gets done. Um, and because there's this nervousness of, well, what do you do with it when you when you get the result? And I'm interested to to sort of have reflected back that that that's still happening, that that's still the case, that there's still this disjoint between what is said and what is actually done. And I wonder about how to um, reinvigorate. I mean, part of what this report's going to do is put the focus back on the fact that these are things that still need to happen. But how do you reinvigorate more mainstream media to start covering this again, start pointing this out, whether it's, you know, start bringing things out from the scholars to to remind people that this is still just as much of an issue as it ever was. Um, And there's a few key highlights in the report that sort of might stick that landing a little bit because there's there's actually some real new stuff in there around um, particular aspects of misinformation and particular aspects of entrepreneurship. Um, and what were the things that sort of leapt out at you as being, wow, I didn't know this either. Like, this mm-hmm. is this is new to me. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I will say that um, up until working on this report, you know, I thought about the big tech companies as being relatively distinct from one another um, in the ways that they function and in their business models. Um, and, uh, I think that that is an outgrowth of, um, some really savvy, uh, policy and marketing teams, uh, communications teams, but nevertheless, um, I think that really understanding that, that the dominant players in the, in big tech are, you know, operating on, data-driven services and computational infrastructure, advertising, market dominance, regulatory influence, and invisible labor. And like those are the ingredients in whatever proportion that are driving these companies. And, um, and so, you know, really seeing that shared across the dominant players also helped to drive home for me that, that this can't be a, um, the well-intentioned ethics offices or trust and safety offices that are being gutted or um, the individuals left to the individuals inside companies who care to do the right thing. Like this is, this is a pervasive set of issues that are very interdependent. And, if, and so they need to be addressed in a really interdependent way um, so that you have, you know, 
a new labor regime that really attends to the ways in which workers are disconnected from one another um, and also surveilled, um, especially at a much higher rate for, for workers who are lower wage and are communities are from communities of color. Um, you know, we need that alongside more robust and, um, uh, and uh, reinvigorated antitrust legislation, um, you know, alongside client, you know, um, one of the surprising things that, that the research um, surfaced, and this came out, actually, you referenced um, the removal of, um, you know, the high-profile high removal of Dr. Timnit Gebru. You didn't say it by name, but you alluded to it in your opening um, and and her team from from Google over the paper stochastic carrots. Um, what that all was about was that Timnit and her research team were calling into question the fact that the size of language models that are being used to you know to for these generative AI products and and language models um, are using tremendous amounts. Of, of natural resources, um, you know, and these, the data centers and, um, uh, you know, where the actual compute processing is happening are placed in often resource scarce environments already. These are environments where people are um, living in poverty already, who are already having a challenging time and um, you know, water's getting privatized, um, you know, minerals are, are being extracted. And I think I just read somewhere, you know, one engagement with ChatGPT requires half a liter of water. Like, that is profound at a time when we are seeing and living through climate impacts across the world. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think I, you know, I was surprised by the number of um, specific examples of, you know, the human impact of AI and the fact that we are not having that conversation on a regular basis, um, especially around issues of climate justice or worker rights, um, is, is really, uh, really concerning to me. Well, the uh, climate, uh, the, the resource utilisation is just off the charts and the forecasts are they're almost at the point that you're not quite sure whether you believe them, you know. Um, but when you look at it, they are robust forecasts. Well, the, yeah, the, the, the part that's hard to believe is, to me, it's not hard to believe the, the bottle of water, right, um, research. Um, what's hard to believe is when you roll that forward and you forecast overall usage of these tools and the growth rate that's expected or the growth rate that's required to create the economic return, from the investment going into it, and then you add up the bottles of water, mm. that becomes, you know, th that's the number that like boggles the mind. Mm. Um, so I'm, I'm having a moment of um, um, struggling to find optimism. Um, so, which you may... <laughs> that, that, you, was, that was where may, I was going. Yeah, you, you, you the question say, was along those you lines. Say, yeah, like, you're right. <laughs> or you may be able to highlight some things that can where, maybe not optimism, but somewhere to... Um, somewhere effective to put my focus instead. And part of this is, is um, you know, when discussing these topics and having this conversation, and you said, you know, this is uh, big tech, there's, there's well-intentioned people, but it can't be the, you know, the, the ethics teams, which as we've 
talked about have been, you know, have been threatened or dismantled. It has to be something that is pervasive. It has to be something from top down. It has to be essentially a, a true corporate policy um, that is um, coupled with very strong regulation, right? Um, and I have struggled there with two because of the political nature of our country, like just to put it straight out there, that these topics would, you know, be branded negatively as woke. And there's an entire side of the country that would say, um, no, um, we're not passing that legislation that's going to create that reg- regulation. And a corporate entity is going to sort of go, well, I'm not sure exactly where I want to publicly state myself on this because I'm going to alienate half of my digital customers in the United States. And that really bums me out. <laughs> and I'm feeling pretty pessimistic. Um, uh, am I right to be? Is there, Or can you give me some somewhere else to point my attention that might actually give me some feel like I've, there's something productive to do and w- perhaps a, a pathway towards a success. Sure. I mean, I really appreciate that it can feel overwhelming and pretty doomsday. A lot of the time I do think that um, there are forces at work that, um, that benefit from reinforcing that, that sort of view on things. I I do not think that we have to take, um, we do not have to take the status quo, accept the status quo as, um, as the way things have to be. Um, and I quite frankly refuse to cede the future to the forces at play right now. And I think that some of that is just inherently in me and it probably passed down through some generations. Um, but um, I really do think that there are some some bright spots. Um, one bright spot is um, that actually in the last year, the AI Bill of Rights has shown up across executive orders, shown up across states, shown up across agencies um, in all kinds of really important ways. Um, so, you know, from... Um, the California Senate um, to uh, Connecticut um, is establishing a working group to assess the AI Bill of Rights and making recommendations. So I will say that there's been a lot of movement and traction at the state level and the agency level on on how to uh, move things forward. And I think that that actually is a really opportune place for individuals to engage because it's actually in sort of local um, city-based, state-based politics um, uh, and engagement that we can actually um, really see the impact of our efforts, I think, in a more tangible way. And there's a really powerful feedback loop that happens when we lean in um, in our local communities to say, we don't want technology to operate this way. A lot of this report and the research behind it demonstrates the ways in which communities of color are harmed by technology. And um, that shows up in issues around housing, around policing, around um, climate justice issues, around economic access. And there are already a lot of organizations who are working on these issues at the local level. Um, And so, you know, one of our amazing advisors on this project, his name is Steven Renderos. He's the executive director of Media Justice. That is a network of grassroots organizations working on media and tech issues on, you know, powered by communities of color. And so I would I would argue that, 
you know, I am a white woman with an Ivy League degree and a lot of privilege, and I want to live in a very different world. And so I see it as my role to lean in and support the work being led by local community groups um, at the intersections that I, you know, that we are talking about. And so maybe, you know, there's a housing justice organization in your community who's not really focused on technology, but also may not, you know, does know a lot about the fact that their landlords are trying to use facial recognition technology to um, automate access to buildings. Um, and as we know from Joy Bolamwini's work and the work of others, that facial recognition technology is not um, uh, effective for uh, th the darker and the more female your facial features. Um, and so this would be, you know, a pretty terrible thing to implement um, in a, say, public housing project, for example. Um, so that's just all to say, you know, I think that it's important for us to recognize that we have to sh show up um, and engage in the work of, um, uh, uh, you know, setting policy at the local level of, um, you know, working to support the work of individuals who are leading and communities who are leading um, around issues of environmental justice or housing justice or economic justice and look for the opportunities to um, uh, to support efforts um, to guide local policy and regulation um, that ultimately ladders up to um, how how we are impacted um, in our communities by by technology systems. Mm. How can institutions in higher education um, think differently about what they? Um, advise their technology groups to do or not do, what they advise their faculty to do or not do, and how they help their students navigate the way through this. Um, what agency can be offered to students and faculty to help them actually um, uh, develop better joint accountability for the outcomes that, you're, that, you, that we're all trying to get here? Great question, um, and I'm so glad that you asked that. So... I think that one of the things that um, makes the AI Bill of Rights so powerful is the way that it was developed. And it was developed through a series of listening sessions over the course of a year. Um, the consultation with civil society, with community groups, with impacted communities specifically, um, all helped to inform this framework. And I think in the context of higher education, I'm seeing a lot of knee-jerk reactions, you know, sort of from on high policies. We're going to fail you if you use generative AI. And then, you know, students will say they've been accused, wrongly accused, and failed in a course where they actually did the work. Um, and there's, there's little opportunity for redress. We've read about those examples. I think that what really needs to happen, and higher education is a perfect place for this, is to, to really develop um, opportunities to be in dialogue between administrators, parents, students, faculty. Um, you know, it, these are places of critical thinking. So surely we can critically think our way to a better solution than, um, than some knee-jerk policies. And so I would really encourage, um, and this is, this is the thrust of many of the policy recommendations of the report, um, is is to get 
you know, really make an effort to get people in the room who have been wrongly accused of using ChatGPT to write their papers when they actually didn't, of getting professors who um, are really at a loss for how to set boundaries around the use of technology in their classrooms, administrators who are needing to set policy around this, and parents who are trying to support their kids. Um, you know, And then obviously there are scholars to weigh in and experts to weigh in as well, but, but really facilitating a, a series of conversations that help to surface the issues, help to surface the challenges and, and really hold the nuance of these, these choices that institutions need to make. Um, and then working to, to develop some test policies and iterate on them as, as they learn. I think that this is, you know, in general, a time to flex our, um, our, our muscles around, you know, iteration and flexibility and, you know, doing the best we can with the information we have now, recognizing that things are going to, to sh shift and we need to be adaptive in those environments. Yeah, it's really, it's really troubling when you hear that um, people who's, um, for whom English isn't their first language are more than twice as likely to be falsely accused of plagiarism using generative AI. Um, and that's that is just an unsustainable position for for um, for this country to to just ignore that and and box on. The, there's a with generative AI in particular, the the world sort of changed as well. In that, for for higher ed, imagine twenty years ago if you'd had to pay twenty dollars a month to get to Google, and this. Um, this access, this equality, this access issue is a is a really difficult one um, for uh, higher education um, institutions, especially at the community college level. And w wonder about whether you've seen out and uh, if you've seen any or heard any conversations about um, you know educational access for some of these tools being at a in a different level or different kinds of access structures, not just the $20 a month subscription to, to be able to get to these tools? You know, I don't know uh, about that, but I, I really question um, the sort of race to deploy in all environments without pausing to think through aspects like access or... Um, you know, how could this be used in a harmful way in this environment? Um, you know, those kinds of questions need to be asked and are not being asked by, um, you know, the, the developers and deployers of generative AI. Yeah, well, at least in, our, not... in our race to AGI. Yeah. <laughs> Please. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I really think that that we have to there needs to be more friction in the system and we have to slow things down. Um, and and the fact that, you know, there are so many examples of technological innovation, you know, in pharmaceutical and, and um, me medical uh, you know, uses where you would never allow, you know, a new drug on the open market without extensive testing. Why isn't that the case for AI? You've mentioned a couple of good um, collaborators um, and other resources. Um, if you were to give a little list 
you know, for listeners who um, want to read something um, more, they, more in depth, they want to follow particular people, they want to get engaged with an organization, but you or know, they want to feel just a sense of of some kind of empowerment, some kind of empowerment that hopefully follows some level of increased knowledge, right, and understanding. You know, just somebody walks in. What, what, what are your t- what's your top list of like these are the places to go, these are the people Great. to t- listen to. Definitely. Well, I'll start with the contributors uh, to this project because they're a fantastic group to start with, um, and and so um, and all of this can be found um, at AINowInstitute.org. Um, they have published the paper, um, and and so you can follow up to find the resources, not only to read the paper itself, but also to see these, these names, um, and, and the, and the underlying scholarship that was, um, provided to our project. But Sarah Robson and Ruha Benjamin, Silence No More, Addressing Anti-Competitive Opportunity Hoarding in the Tech Industry, um, Dr. Fallon Wilson, Supporting Black Businesses Online with Federal Policies and Recommendations, Dr. Jasmine McNeely, a power analysis platforms, expression, equitable governance, and participation. Amina Kirk and Mae Watson Grote at Change Machine. Um, Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee, who's currently at the Brookings Institution. Dr. Sarah Myers-West at AI Now Institute. Uh, Shelley Stewart at the Aspen Institute. Um, Dr. Ulysses Ali Mejias, who's at SUNY Oswego, and Dr. Vina Dubal um, at the University of California, Irvine. Um, and, and Vina um, joined me and Dr. Sarah Myers-West and Stephen Renderos from Media Justice um, in our panel discussion that launched this paper last week. And so that's another resource I would point folks to is, is the recording of that discussion, which should be available um, uh, next week, um, up on, on YouTube. Um, so those are a few suggestions. Um, there are many, many more organizations who, um, informed and supported this work in a variety of ways. Um, and, and I can just speak to a couple of those, the algorithmic justice league, as I mentioned, the Athena coalition, especially if you're interested in sort of the intersection of technology and workers, um, Color of Change, Data for Black Lives, Data and Society Research Institute, um, Media Justice I've talked about a few times, um, the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, and Our Data Bodies are just a few of the organizations that I would also encourage you to check out. We will do our best to collect links for all of those and put them in the show notes. So Great. Um, you can scroll down now while you're listening and find them. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Um, this is, um, it's a great report and I'm very glad that, um, you were inspired to actually tackle this and, and dig this deep because it's a topic that as I started off with, it's easy to think it's already being covered, you know, and, and things are happening. Um, and it's important to dig deeper than that and to recognize how much of a gap there truly is between what you might think and what you might want to have as an outcome. So thank you so much for your work and for joining us. It's been, it's been a great conversation. Thank you both. Take care of each other.